Passage, la nouvelle série de podcasts de l'Institut français. Un échange libre et sans modérateur entre une personnalité des mondes francophones et une personnalité néerlandaise sur des thèmes qui leur sont chers. So, I'm in Amsterdam to, to present Le Grand Tour, which is uh, an anthology of contemporary European literature with uh, 27 authors one per member state uh, this is Jan Brocken for the Netherlands and uh, we have a bunch of fantastic European writers from all over the continent uh, Daniel Kellman for Germany Sophie Oksanen for Finland Melis de Kerangal for France and many others and um, I ask all these writers to, to write about a place in their own country which as a relationship which tells something about European culture or European history. Otherwise, they were completely free. There was a, a lens. I mean, otherwise, the book would, be, would have been 1,000 pages. But otherwise, they were completely free to write about in a fiction way or in a non-fiction way. They could also have written poems. Everything was possible. And at the end um, of Le Grand Tour, I think you have a, a pretty good picture of the zeitgeist of uh, the early 20s of the 21st century in in Europe. I mean, the zeitgeist before the war in, in the Ukraine. I think it's going to change a lot. It's changing a lot. It's very difficult to say what's going to change. But with this book, you can see what are the... Um, What are the perspectives for uh, European writers? And also, I think there are two... We, you could divide this book in, in two main parts, even if there are seven chapters in this book, but there are two big parts. The, the first one is the, the memory of the totalitarian experience in Europe. I mean, it's, I was very impressed. I was, not su I was surprised and I was not surprised. I was surprised that so many writers uh, wrote freely about these issues, I mean, about the Holocaust, about uh, the legacy of communism in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, the Italian writer wrote about fascism, the Portuguese one about uh, slaves and, the, I mean, the tradition of slavery in Portugal. Uh, the Cypriot wrote about the invasion by the Turks in 74. I mean, all these scares of, of the 20th century. So that's one of the big parts. So I was surprised and not surprised because, of course, it's so big. And the second part of the book, I would say, deals with what we could uh, call um, common places of Europe. I mean, all the places that you find everywhere in Europe like cafes, like museums, like uh, train stations, like um, touristy resorts, uh, like, um, like archaeological sites. You know, really what you, you, you find everywhere in Europe. And also about artist colonies. Which, is a, which has a very long tradition, of course, in Europe. I mean, Jan Brocken from the Netherlands wrote something about this, or the, the Danish uh, writer. So, basically, these are the... the um, we can start with this, about the, what Le Grand Tour uh, teaches us. <laughs> Great. Um, I had a look at the Le Grand Tour. Uh, very impressive. I like the idea of different people writing about Europe from their different perspective. And 
that comes up into some sort of can- canon, mm-hmm. if you want, and and I it, it's it's really great. And um, when I when I came here to talk to you, I thought, you know, what would I have written? And it's actually very difficult to to think first. Um, maybe it should come straight away, um, but I, I was thinking for a while, and then in the end, I thought I would I would start with Berlin. Okay, I'm a Berliner, so you know it seems obvious, but um, I think it's not so obvious because I then lived in Italy, I lived in Belgium, in the UK, and at other places. But I, I think even now, after the beginning of the war, um, Berlin is an example of sort of hope and anxiety, sort of uh, of the worst of Europe. It's a, it's a model of the worst of Europe. I mean, the war, the Second World War, the First World War, the Holocaust, and then the separation, the Teilung, you know, the Berlin Wall and, and so on, the Cold War. So the Berlin is a symbol for all these things. But then it's also a symbol for what can happen. The wall could come down, something unbelievable. I was there I, in, in the beginning of the day, the 9th of November 1989, if someone had said to me in the evening, the wall is gone, I would have said, you know, you're a lunatic. So um, things can happen. And then Germany actually uh, managed a relatively soft landing, so to say, in a, as a European power. Maybe it's under discussion now with the war, but I, I think it's it is it shows that positive things can happen out of something terrible and if i had to take um, one more specific place actually i live i live uh, close and my my street is actually the only street in berlin which is still divided by the wall because there's the wall museum bergstraße um, and so I often go, especially during the um, corona times, for a walk along the f- former wall strip. It's now very green and, and, and trees and, and, and grass, and then there is a bit of the wall. And I think that's, that's an amazing place to remember sort of angst and, and hope. So sort of that's my opening shot, so to say. I, I lived five years in Berlin uh at the end of the of the last decade, and uh, I mean, I think the, the first year of my stay in Berlin, I was so impressed because I, I could feel history everywhere. Also, because the city, um, as uh, I mean, there is this very specific policy in Berlin. I mean, to show the historical places. I mean, this is where someone lived and about the Second World War, about the GDR, about everything. Even if you, you, you not Andre, but you, you decided to, to destroy the, the, um, how was it called? Uh, the big uh, GDR Palast. To build uh, the Palace de République. You know, Palace de République. <laughs> uh, I was there, I mean, it was still there when I arrived and then they destroyed it and then they started to, to build again the, the castle mm. on Solon Castle, which is a strange thing. Very strange. Uh, but I, but I was very impressed, in fact, by this uh, because I mean I love history and I was so sensitive to all of this. And um, this is something which is interesting for Europe because we have this. I mean, the memory of the past is so huge and so terrible, 
but on a certain way Berlin managed to transform this as a as a positive mm. thing which is very strange because I don't know many cities in Europe where they managed to do the same to have this Erinnerungskultur mm. this memory and this culture of memories and to to manage to transform it in a sort of a positive way mm. and and I mean Berlin is full of ghosts but it's not like Vienna or Warsaw or Budapest where you can feel there there is a very melancholic thing mm. in other central European cities and you don't have this melancholic thing in Berlin there is sometimes on a November day and November Sundays I mean it's <laughs> Berlin can also be be pretty de- depressing mm. but otherwise you have this energy that you don't that you don't feel in so many European cities mm. I, I was thinking about it uh, recently in the course of the the war in Ukraine, and um, when we talked about people in Russia mm-hmm. who who would oppose the war and where to find them and whether any whether it would be possible. And now people don't think it's possible to bring down the Putin regime. And I say to them. Look, I know things can happen. They can happen very quickly. Maybe it will take decades, but maybe it will be very quicker. Or it will be quicker than you 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 think. And you have to have that sort of hope that mm-hmm. things can happen. And if you don't have that, and I have that hope, because if basically you could, or Nazi Germany could become a nice Germany, mm-hmm. um, then anything is possible. Then, then also Putin's Russia will in good time become a good neighbor and friend again, maybe. Now people probably will tell you, what is this guy? Is he, you know, he's not with Ukraine? No, that's not the case. But we also want to have um, a Russia to be a friend again at some point. Not now, of course, um, but if Nazi Germany could become a friend, um, the former Putin uh, Russia uh, will become a friend too in the future and I, I think that's the the story for me um, of Berlin in in that sense and then we also <laughs> want to talk about football and in in fact 2006 the uh, football World Cup in in Germany was a very important event much more important for Germany than for football um, because it showed for the Germans and for for the world that the Germans can be fun and that they can be welcoming and they can be good friends and they can I have a party. I was in Berlin at that time and I have to say this that was one of my best football and experience as a, as a human being, I have mm. to say. I mean, the the atmosphere was so friendly and the Germans were so surprised to be so cool in <laughs> fact and to be loved by everyone and they organized it so well and but especially the the atmosphere was amazingly mm. friendly and then I went to Russia for the last oh, World yeah. Cup uh, I was uh, because I, I wrote a lot about football and uh, Le Monde sent me uh, you know I had a, a column every mm. every two three days and the atmosphere was very different mm. in Russia but Putin, who was clever at the time, uh, didn't appear as the super dictator. I mean, he just showed up at the first game and then he completely disappeared. And as if Russia was a kind of normal country. And 
I mean, I had been in Russia before, and the atmosphere was very different mm. in the sense that you couldn't see so many police. And you had, I mean, if you didn't know what was the regime like in Russia, you could say it was a normal democracy. People were friendly. I mean, the police were friendly. Even people in the museums, working in the museum, were friendly. Mm. Well, it is uh, well notorious that people in the museums in Russia are terrible. They never smile, like in the communist times. And uh, but the atmosphere was very different. You could you could feel. I mean, lots of people told me be careful with your phones, and uh, you should have a Russian phone. And even if it looks normal, it's not normal. Germany was completely different in 2006. And what you say is very. It's true that what happened in Germany, even there lots lots of things to to say about. Uh, German policy toward Russia the last 15 years and about Merkel, for instance. Mm. But it's true that the evolution of Germany is um, it's not only interesting, it's, it's also a kind of a model, how it works on its, its history. And I think this is what didn't happen in Russia. Mm. There was, uh, I mean, education and there was no culture of memories. I mean, they didn't look at Stalinism, they didn't look at what happened uh, under Lenin and uh, everything, What I, I mean, the worst things of the Gulag and even the, the German-Soviet <coughs> alliance in between 39 mm. and 41. I mean, this never happened. And all the NGOs like Memorials would try to, 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 to work to dig on. Uh, Russian history couldn't work and now they're, they're closed. Mm. So I think this is the main difference. For me, Russia today is a bit like Germany during the interwar period. Mm. I mean, the evolution, basically, the El seniors were kind of funny and creative, but it was also uh, a big mess, a bit like the Weimar Republic in mm -hmm. a certain way. And the Russians, lots of Russians, the, 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 the feeling of humiliation, like the Germans in mm. the 20s, early 30s. And then Putin, I don't like this comparison, is Putin and New Hitler and this kind of thing, but you have this evolution, in fact, that's, he worked on this idea of humiliation. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I hope what you're telling Andre is, is true, but it, it will take a long, long time because mm -hmm. I worked a lot about German memories. Yeah. I, I, I wrote, for instance, the script of this movie, The, the Stadt gegen Fritz Bauer. Mm -hmm. And uh, although the book about Mengele is also a book about a reflection about uh, German memory. I mean, it took something like 30, 40 years, in fact, for Germans mm -hmm. to really work on its history. So if we're optimistic, maybe in 2060, Russia will be uh, a good friend of the, <laughs> of the West if it's not 60 or 70 degrees outside. Mm. Well, it's still, uh, I think, um, it's, it's still good to, to know that things can happen. But it's interesting what you say about the interwar years, which is also, uh, you know, creating a certain level of anxiety because we know what happened at the end of the interwar years um, but um, yeah I mean uh, what what concerns me and of course we wanted to talk about also more fun things is um, do we as humans need to reinvent everything again you know I mean do we we thought we figured it out in a way you know we had that thing with war, it's over. I mean, we don't need that anymore. We do other things, technology and, and, and so on. And then um, we even we talk about Europe. We even set up conferences and reflection groups to figure out what is the purpose of Europe. 
um, just a few years ago because we we thought we lost it. We lost the purpose of Europe. And um, and now we are back to something quite basic. It's a peace and cooperation. We are happy only with that basic notion. We don't even wonder about any. So, and I, I just wonder, do we need to go through another cycle? And now it's up to you to turn this into a positive thing. Thing is, um, basically, well, we can see maybe Germany is a bit different, but otherwise, in every European country or Western country, society is divided in two camps. The camps, which is so-called populist and so on, uh, perceive Europe as an enemy or adversary, and I think this is the main challenge. It's to bring Europe to these people, to show that Europe is not something for what they call elite or people who are on the good side of the globalization gate, but it's something which is for everyone. Maybe there will still uh, be a bunch of nationalists and we will never be interested by this. But I think that out this half of this population, I mean, a good part can be convinced. And I think this is our main challenge. And the EU is too associated with the, the people who are on the good side mm. of the gate. And because, I don't know if it was a factor of liberal globalization or if it was just something which accompanied uh, this globalization, but because we, we lack, there is a, a lack of um, cultural uh, aspects of the EU, mm. something because what's the story tell us? I mean, the last ten years, there is a huge problem of identity because of globalization. Lots of people felt threatened, mm. and Europe was not a friend for these people. They didn't bring some something, in fact, to to give them a kind of insurance about their identity. On the other end, it was perceived as a as a catalyst for more identity change. And I think this is one of the big, big, big issue. I don't know if it's positive, but I think it's an interesting perspective. If we can try to to build a bridge uh, between these two parts of the populations. Otherwise we're gonna be we're gonna be more and more divided and something will happen. I mean this we we can't function as societies uh, like in the US. This is a catastrophe what's going on in the US. Biden or not Biden, Trump or not Trump, and I think this should be one of the main goals of the of the EU. Is it positive enough for you, Andre? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I think of, uh, I why I, I'm thinking, and when we have two minutes, I was told mm. or we were told. Um, um, I think there are so many books and 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 and, and stories out there which which are negative. Mm -hmm. So when, when I wrote a book about Europe, my publishing house said, look look at this wall. This wall is full of books about how bad Europe is. Um, and I said, exactly, that's why I want to write book a positive book, mm -hmm. simply because you need to put a, <coughs> another story you in You know what we should do? I mean, we are the 9th of May, so the mm -hmm. day of Europe. We should organize, I don't know, like a continental buffet next year <laughs> for ev for everyone, 
and just to share because I mean mm. food is a huge part of European identities mm. and it's very friendly and it's very open to and so if we could organize I don't know like a, a huge restaurant all over Europe the ninth, next ninth mm. of, yeah. of May uh, just to show I mean just to bring Europe to all these people who don't feel concerned or feel mm. threatened by Europe that would be just a little thing but it would be funny eh? yeah well, I think there's a lots of little things, like yeah, for example, com- coffee. Yeah, exactly. Coffee is another thing. I mean, at Unites Europe, I, I call it uh, sort of this the secret um, social network of mm-hmm. Europe is is are the coffee places, and uh, but also singing songs. Um, even the Eurovision Song Contest, in a way, uh, I see it as a kind Champions of a League. Champions League. Instead of Gazprom, we <laughs> could have uh, EU, some EU institutions sponsoring uh, the Champions League. It would be yeah, much well, better than yeah, exactly. not sponsoring, but at least you could see a European flag yeah. that it's part of European identity and it's part of European identity, the Champions League. So uh, a banque, a huge European banque, we could organize uh, next year. That sounds like a good idea. It's. Uh, maybe I would pick up on the question of identity. Um, one thing on my grand tour of Europe, so my, my life in Europe, was I, I lived in Switzerland for a while. And when I lived there, I thought, maybe I look into the history of Switzerland. And it's actually very interesting, because it is, in a way, in a, in a small way, the history of Europe, but over 800 years. Mm-hmm. And um, And... At that point, I thought maybe we're expecting a lot from from Europe to do a lot of things in a very short time. We have now the history of a peaceful European Union for like 75 years or 72 years. But um, Switzerland needed around 800 years to come to the current imperfect form it is. Mm-hmm. It's still not perfect. Um, you know, there are lots of uh, faults and, and so on. They're still working on it. But it took a long time. I call it uh, the Schweizer Langeweile. Um, uh, in, uh, sort of the, it's it's also a little bit boring. But and it took a long time. So in, in German, you, it's the same word. Strangely enough, um, only written in a different way, Langeweile or oder lange Weile. Mm-hmm. And um, and it it the the story of Switzerland uh, is interesting in a sense that. It, it can happen, it will happen, but it may take longer than we think, and it will take, um, you know, trouble, uh, conflict, but uh, working out the conflict, and I think in a way the last, and that's for me the identity of the new Europe. The new Europe is is working on itself, in a, in a way like a developing country, in a positive sense. It's constantly developing, it's not giving up, um, and um, I, I think that's for me a positive vision of Europe as a developing country. Yeah, it's a dynamic proce- process, that's for sure. You speak about Switzerland, I like thinking uh, about the Kaunka, the Austra- Austrian-Hungarian empire. I have a kind of nostalgia <laughs> for this <laughs> empire. Uh, especially uh, I have the nostalgia of this very cosmopolitan ensemble people speaking four or five mm. languages, traveling easily under a kind of a common umbrella. Okay, it was an, um, an empire with an emperor, but somehow it worked pretty well. And everyone could speak its own language and were presented in the parliament at the end. And uh, 
with uh, tolerance for many religions, many nationalities, and I think that was a big, big mistake to to destroy this this ensemble. All the catastrophe came from Central Eastern Europe, and st it's still coming. So yeah, something between. I think the Austro-Hungarian Empire was a bit more exciting than Switzerland, mm. <laughs> at least in my ID. Even if I really like Switzerland somehow, because yeah, it's it's an interesting model, but people don't really mingle. I mean, mm. the French are on their side, the Germans on their side, the Italians on their side, but it's very small, so mm. of course people meet. But yeah, something in between. What was interesting with, um, I mean, it's also the case with Switzerland. I mean, they have very strong symbols. Mm. Um, I mean, the flag, the anthem, the landscapes chocolates, the clocks, <laughs> everything. No, I mean, it's true. This is how mm. it works. Yeah. I mean, you need to have very strong symbols. I mean, if we had to give some symbols of contemporary Europe, what would it be? Difficult. That's the main difference with Switzerland. I'm not even talking about the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which had so many symbols and also religious story. And of course, we can't, we can't build an, um, a European empire like this. But Switzerland works. I mean, it's like a... It's a brand everywhere in the world. I mean, mm. for the good and for the worst. I mean, you have the banks also, you have everything. And I think this is something what Europe should develop, strong symbols. I mean, mm. when you think about Europe, okay, you think about all of this. And, um, but it's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Well, now I give you a one final thought on that, on the symbols. Uh, it's a bit provocative. Um, what about bureaucracy? Um, could that be a symbol of Europe? You, you might, people say, this is terrible. And I, I picked that up because it is so terrible, because people say, my Europe is great, but there's a bureaucracy. And I looked at this and I thought, maybe not, maybe not. And uh, that's why I call it the discrete charm of the bureaucracy, because let's say in the old days, Europe, Europe's sport was war. And then they decided to give it up and they created a bureaucracy. Robert Schumann was a, was a bureaucrat. They created a bureaucracy to fight out their wars um, through regulations. So now we have a bureaucracy which is fighting every day about uh, you know, paragraphs and this and that and trade things. And I, I think it's, it's quite a civilized way of, of sorting stuff out. If it works, I mean, so, so we far. go back to the Austrian Hungarian Empire, exactly, which has a very strong, which had a very strong uh, bureaucracy also, <laughs> and some of the Musil wrote about this. Yeah. So Kafka was yeah, part exactly. of it somehow. Um, but, uh, but let's not come out of this podcast and saying the, the symbol of Europe is the bureaucracy. Then you know, no, we, we, maybe we can us. find something more <laughs> sexy. <laughs> <laughs> for, for the next podcast, we, yeah. we can find something more uh, attractive than bureaucracy. Even if it's, yeah, it's very civil. It's very urban mm. way of treating fine compromise. But, yeah. If you would have one word to describe Europe according to you, what would it be? With one word. I think it's uh, beauty. Um... A river. <laughs>